Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Very motivated patient's wife started making him broccoli soup uh, every day with lots and lots of broccoli concentrated with black pepper and olive oil and things like that. And his PSA, a marker of cancer, significantly dropped. Welcome back to The Andy Rowe Show. Professor Robert Thomas is one of Britain's leading oncologists and an expert in using functional medicine alongside cancer treatment. He's going to give you some easy examples of how you can help lessen the chances of getting cancer, dementia, diabetes and improve your blood pressure. But before we get into the episode, Athletic Greens are supporting this episode again. I've been taking AG1 by Athletic Greens for about a year now. It actually doesn't taste super healthy, but it has this kind of mild tropical taste, and I actually look forward to it each morning. With one scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food sourced ingredients, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start the day right. It's just one scoop and a cup of water each day. That's it. No need for a million different pills or supplements to look after your health. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash Andy. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash Andy to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Andy. Before we get into the interview, I know we're going to talk about lots of alternative ways to treat medical conditions, but I think it's important for people to understand where you come from and your background because you're not an alternative guy that's preaching to just eat vegetables and you'll be fine. So Andy, it's interesting you use the word alternative. I and many people in the same sort of sphere of looking at lifestyle strategies, nutrition and exercise, we don't call that alternative. We call it integrating strategies into mainstream management. And there was a very famous professor from Exeter, actually, called Engs, and he said there's no such thing as alternative. There's either strategies which work and strategies which don't work, and they could be in the medical sphere or the traditional medical sphere or in the lifestyle sphere. The important thing is you get evidence that they work so you can advise people properly. And that's what we try to set up to do, is get the evidence to provide people with, or empower people with the knowledge of how they can live their lives to get the best out of themselves. Because do you think people sometimes rely too much on conventional, for want of a better term, medicine? Well, that's our belief. I mean, if you go to the GP, for example, complaining of constipation or you've got early blood pressure or indigestion, uh, not sleeping, um, there is a tendency, not all doctors, obviously, to instantly start looking at drugs and quick fixes. But there's lots of things people can do themselves to help you know, everyday ailments. And, and certainly in the preventing chronic degenerative disease sphere so in other words uh, things we all get as we get older like arthritis memory loss uh, high blood pressure diabetes those sort of things which are very common uh, there's a lot we can do to prevent those happening what are some of the real basic things people could do straight away if you were to put it in a nutshell if you want to prevent cancer arthritis degenerative diseases you have to live your life so you improve your gut health you reduce chronic inflammation, you reduce something called oxidative stress, which is where you've got these small particles damaging your DNA, etc. There's four or five different pillars. So first of all would be to exercise more, to reduce processed sugar, and to eat foods which improve gut health. How do you reduce inflammation? Well, first of all, inflammation is what we all need to survive. So if you're a caveman and get bitten by a tiger or something, you need inflammation to go into the wound and help it heal. You know, if you've, had, uh, if you've been bitten by an insect or if you're having an operation. So inflammation is not a bad thing. In fact, it's part of our normal immunity. The problem is with the Western-type 
lifestyle. We have toxins attacking us or on our bodies every day. We have poor gut health, which allows toxins into the bloodstream. We have an excess amount of inflammation and no downtime. So your body's constantly upregulating the immune system and creating this these inflammatory pathways. For the short term, inflammatory pathways are good because they kill bacteria and viruses and things. But in the long term, you get collateral damage. So they will damage other organs. So, you know, classically, the joints, the pancreas, the brain. And it's that chronic excess inflammation you have to have to avoid. There's certain dietary things which have anti-inflammatory properties either directly or enhancing uh, the regulation of the inflammatory pathway so turmeric would be the classic one but chilies uh, most green vegetables fruit uh, you know there's even things in in chocolate and and red wine which are, are good for you so so that's that's one part of it exercising and as i've said at the in the introduction improving gut health which prevents these inflammatory toxins entering the bloodstream and triggering the inflammatory pathways. You know, as you said at the beginning, is it a quick fix? It's not really a quick fix. You've got to change the whole way you live. So, so for example, if you get up in the morning, you've fasted overnight, you've started the day, so, you know, you need to carry on as you mean to. So avoid any processed sugar first thing in the morning. So that, for example, starts feeding the bad pro-inflammatory bacteria in your gut so start the day with slow release carbohydrates and avoid anything processed so in other words don't have what 90 percent of british people have for breakfast which is a sugary cereal or sugar in their tea and coffee what about a smoothie in california they say you you smooth your vegetables or crush your vegetables and you eat your fruit if you put too much fruit in a smoothie especially first thing in the morning you're going to get a big sugar rush and that's what sets up inflammatory pathways. Fruit is generally very, very, very healthy. So I'm not saying don't eat fruit, but try to eat it whole. Or if you're going to put it in a smoothie, have it in, a, in after a meal later in the day. Why is it different? So could I eat banana, but not smoothie a banana? Yes, sort of. Um, if you put things into a smoothie, you're breaking it down. So you're breaking down the fiber away from the sugar. It's called a glycemic index or a glycemic load. So it's transferred across the gut wall quicker. And that's what is the important thing. Fortunately, within fruit, there are things called polyphenols, which actually do slow the transport of sugar across the gut wall. So that's why it's you know, not as bad as actually sticking processed sugar into the smoothie, that's for sure. So the smoothie, you can have it, but have more vegetables. I know that's not so tasty in the morning, is it? Putting celery and spinach and avocado. And if you do make a smoothie put other things like turmeric and and maybe some cinnamon right. etc so i could have a smoothie as long as i put vegetables in it rather than fruit yes but it obviously doesn't taste as nice but nevertheless all right let's talk about your perfect <laughs> breakfast then let's go let's hit that one i'm, I'm not a good cook so I'm, <laughs> but something like uh, a small piece of sourdough bread with some slowly cooked mushrooms tomatoes a few bits of sliced avocado uh, lots of pepper uh, maybe if you can get some seaweed in wales we call it lava bread and maybe a, a free-range egg as well mixed in with that. That's lots of lots of polyphenols, lots of fibre, whole vegetables and minerals, and, and it tastes pretty nice as well, but it takes a bit longer to prepare. I noticed you said slow-cooked tomatoes. Why slow-cooked tomatoes? Well, fortunately, the polyphenol and tomato called lycopene is pretty heat-robust, so it's not so much the tomatoes, but it's the other vegetables. If you really heat them to high temperature, you start breaking down the, the natural chemicals, the vitamins, and not so much the minerals, but the vitamins and the polyphenols. And anything cooked to a very high temperature in the oil, and that's the important part. If Once you start seeing the oil smoking, it starts changing the structure of the omega-3 and the omega-6 uh, essential oils get broken down so you don't get their benefit and more importantly they start becoming pro-inflammatory you get these pro-inflammatory oils which can set up an inflammation so if you cook the olive oil or the other oils you use as long as they're natural to a slow heat and heat them up rather than just slapping it on the pan and and seeing it boiling and smoking that's what's not so good so you can still cook them in the pan though just yeah. slowly yeah yeah but just turn the heat down a little bit when you cook anything at a high temperature it creates dietary toxins right correct how uh, does that work so you know the example would be um if you have it on an open griddle or a barbecue and i know you're from new zealand you probably like barbecues love a barbecue exactly so you've got the smoke going directly onto the food 
and smoke itself is carcinogenic. So you're, you're directly adding carcinogens to the meat. Secondly, when the fat is uh, dripping onto the flame, uh, it mixes them with the protein. So basically, when you, when you heat up protein and oil to a high temperature, it forms a carcinogen especially if you don't eat it with sort of uh, herbs and spices and vegetables. And that goes into the stomach and causes stomach cancer and esophageal cancer, etc. But if you have it with, if you cook it slow, more slowly, you don't tend to have these nitrous amines in the first place. But also, if you have it with vegetables, those nitrous amines are metabolized into nitric acid. And nitric acid is actually beneficial for the body rather than harmful. So if you have the right foods with it, a barbecue that they can kind of cancel each other out is that what you just said or did i just misread you, that you did yeah i said i mean it's, i'll quote a, an experiment from maryland in 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 america where they got a group of barbecue eaters so what they did is they said right here's the meat we'll put it onto the barbecue we'll heat it to a high temperature and you eat it and a few hours later they did blood tests and they measured the level of carcinogens in the body they then got the same group a few days later and they marinated the meat in rosemary and other herbs and spices they slow cooked it in the oven first so it was partially cooked and then they just put it on the barbecue at a lower flame just to give it a bit of sort of um, you know that nice barbecue taste mm. which everyone likes and they made sure they ate it with uh, with a salad and then they measured the carcinogens and it was about 20 times less in the bloodstream so in other words you had the same volume of meat it probably tasted nicer anyway doing it that way and yet the risks were significantly lower. That's I, incredible. So many people barbecue, and that's not, a big, that's not a big change to make to your barbecuing, to do something slightly different like that. Mm. And it can make 20 times the amount of difference. Exactly. And we don't know if that equated to a 20 times lower risk of getting cancer later in life, but you know, logic says it does. You talk in your book about crisps as well, because they're, they're cooked at a high heat, especially mm. Pringles and low-fat crisps. Yeah, so we talked about nitrous amines in meats. Uh, the other big group of uh, carcinogens are called acrylamides, acrylamides, which is how you say it. And they are produced by sugar being heated to a high temperature or starch heated to a high temperature. So things like um, potatoes, flour, most of the things, you know, as I say, crisps, got potatoes, but you could have these healthy snacks which have been heated in the oven to a high temperature, um, often with sugar added. And that means those sugars are converted to acrylamides, which is, which is carcinogenic. Interestingly enough, it's the vegetable crisps have more acrylamides in really? than, than ordinary crisps. So people go to the health section of shops and say, oh, I'm going to get a, you know, a sweet potato crisp or a carrot crisp. They're actually much higher in carcinogens than ordinary crisps. And many companies now, especially these kettle crisp varieties, they add sugar before they then heat them. There's the worst thing they can do. So first of all, you've got the, all the harm of having sugar in something you don't need to have sugar in. Plus, they've created more acrylamides in it, in, by adding it. Um, so if you are going to have crisps, yeah, just get an ordinary plain crisp, which is not, you know, and just accept it's not particularly healthy. But don't try to go for these fancy crisps with all the... Um, the extra problems you see so many people do try and make their unhealthy habit a little bit healthier and go for those veggie crisps but mm. they're worse for you yeah yeah and uh, you know anything processed so you know i don't want to blame pringles because it's hundreds of companies but you know if you google cancer in a can that's what comes up because of that process you're getting you're getting you know, different sources of carbohydrate, you know, rice, veg, uh, wheat, potatoes, you're mushing it up into a pulp, adding sugar and heating it to a super high temperature. And that's like a perfect storm of creating acrylamides. So Pringles are the worst crisps or one of? Um, that variety of crisp where there's processed carbohydrate heated to a very high temperature. Oh my goodness. You mentioned wine before having some good properties. Because I'm trying to put this barbecue together, so I'm not having crisps before the barbecue. I'm going to slow cook my meat in the oven first and then put it on the barbecue just for that barbecue taste. And we're going to slow cook it in some rosemary and some other veggies. Good. I'm going to have a drink at my barbecue and have some red wine. Is that probably the best thing I could be doing if I'm going to be drinking? You know, I can't say that wine is a health drink. But, you know, if you compare it to other alcoholic drinks, it's probably the best. 
um, obviously, if you really just wanted the resveratrol, which is the polyphenol in red wine, which gives it its red colour, you could just eat grapes, of course. But, you know, that's not as nice. And, you know, alcohol does have some positive sides. It's a slight vasodilator. Some people say it could reduce the blood pressure slightly. It relaxes you. It's nice in a social environment. So, you know, we, we have to enjoy our lives. You know, the advantage of red wine, it has got resveratrol, which counterbalances some of the negative effects of the alcohol on gut health. We know that alcohol is bad for gut health. One of the things is bad for gut health. So if you're going to have anything, a good quality glass of wine is probably the best to have as far as a dessert so i've I've finished my barbecue i've had a few red wines Mm. not not too many but i've had a few and then i get to the dessert section of my barbecue what what could i be having there that's okay well i you know i like desserts after a meal especially at lunchtime um so you know i'm not um it i'm not totally against sugar i just think sugar's really bad on an empty stomach you know particularly first thing in the morning or before lunch or between meals um so after after a barbecue you've got a, your stomach's already full of food so the impact of the sugar is so much smaller but of course you know there's different uh, forms of sugar if you can have some live yogurt thrown in there some kefir maybe mixed with some berries um it's all pretty healthy um i was asked once um someone came over from lithuania and thought i was a chef uh, which was a bit embarrassing because I can't <laughs> cook for toffee. So I quickly ran out and got some strawberries and melted some 100% dark chocolate and dipped the strawberry in the chocolate and said, look, you've now got the perfect dessert. It's full of polyphenols, hardly any processed sugar. You can get chocolate without any sugar. And you've got the strawberry. So you've got you know everything in one and it's still really, really healthy. So strawberries and dark chocolate or yogurt with berries. Yeah, or you could have the strawberry and dark chocolate with some live yogurt. Make sure it's live yogurt and there's no added sugar to the yogurt. Oh, okay. So that's important. So you just can't, can't just go and grab some yogurt. Um, not really, because, in fact, I say this, I have this conversation with many patients. They say, oh, yes, I have yogurt. Um, but, you know, they would have gone to the local supermarket. They would have got a fat-free, which isn't even yogurt. It's just a sort of mix of chemicals with the name yogurt on the front, full of sugar, full of preservatives what i mean by yogurt is how we used to make yogurt you know 50 years ago where you get bacteria and milk you ferment the milk and it turns into a yogurt they call it kefir these days but that's just how yogurt used to be made okay also those probiotic things you can buy that look a little taste a little bit like yogurt like runny yogurt is it is it sort of similar stuff um, yeah, there was lots of companies who started making these small sort of little shots like Actimil and things like that. Initially, they were actually, um, you know, they were packed full of sugar as well, which would actually counterbalance any benefit. They usually have only just one strain of probiotic. So I was not really a fan of those, to be perfectly honest. I would just have a, a natural live yo- yogurt or go on, you know, if you're concerned about gut health, I'm actually a fan of, you know, selected probiotic capsules to really boost the intake of the healthy bacteria. Are there any decent probiotics you can just, like, so like those Actimal ones, are there any along those lines that you can get in the supermarket that you would I, recommend? Or? I wouldn't recommend any of those because they would, you know, to be honest, they've either got sweeteners in yeah. or sugars in. And sweetener has been associated with the damage to the gut health. That's one of the reasons why sweeteners aren't particularly healthy if you are going to go and want to boost your intake i would take a a nice healthy uh, probiotic capsule just something like your gut plus which is one of the ones we used in our recent covid study uh, which has just got five blends of uh, healthy lactobacillus with some inulin which is a prebiotic mix into it and also some vitamin d you know, i'm not saying we should be turning to supplements instead of a diet but there are certain situations mm. especially in a in a British environment where we're not very good at eating foods which are rich in bacteria. So I would actually take a supplement and try to have things like kimchi or unpasteurized sauerkraut, which are packed full of um, healthy bacteria, and try to have something like that every day. What was the COVID study you did? Well, during when COVID started, we had to drop all our mainstream research mm. in our research unit. and so, But there was a lot of incentive to do covid studies obviously because that was a big priority for the world first of all we had to go to the ward and treat patients with covid so we were coming in contact with people and it became fairly obvious on our own observation and from studies across the world that people who had poor gut health were catching covid more were more likely to catch covid but more importantly 
they were suffering more. So they were getting more uh, higher temperatures. They were more likely to end up on intensive care and then go on to develop long COVID. Since then, that, that hypothesis at the time has been perpetuated and it's now mainstream. Really? So back in, um, you know, almost 18 months ago, we said, look, if this is a, a factor, can we develop an intervention to improve gut health if people get COVID and then improve outcomes? So although the correlation was, was established, there wasn't uh, a solution. So we worked with a whole team of nutritionalists and uh, they came up with the probiotic called Your Gut Plus, uh, which is, again, uh, fairly safe, just a basic lactobacillus inulin combination. And we gave that or placebo to people with COVID and we looked at their outcomes. So we looked at the time in hospital, whether they'd go on to intensive care, uh, whether they'd go on to develop long covid and all other symptoms, so you know how fatigued they were, uh, whether they slept at night. So over a nine-month period, we recruited just over 150 participants who had COVID. And as it transpired, um, over half of those had what is now called long COVID. Of course, we didn't know that existed when we were recruiting. In other words, people who'd had symptoms, well, the average was up to 100 days. And we were really, really pleased to see that if you gave an intervention which improved gut health, in this case a probiotic supplement, there was a very significant difference in the recovery rate compared to those who had placebo. So it was a, a genuine result. Uh, in the study, we also combined it with a supplement which had lots and lots of polyphenols and phytochemicals, which in the last SARS outbreak were researched and found to have antiviral properties. Um, but, you know, it's all sort of fizzled out. I mean, it's well known in the research sphere, but it never sort of came out into the public that certain foods like resveratrol, which is maybe one reason why red wine could be beneficial, uh, but things like high-dose chamomile, uh, citrus bioflavins. What, what are they in? Resveratrol is in sort of grapes and, and wine. The chamomile is a, is a herb, as in chamomile tea. Citrus bioflavins actually are, are, yeah, in citrus fruit. So, you know, but in the supplement, they're sort of concentrated and the extracts of the the most likely polyphenol within them, which has the antiviral properties, are called the citrus bioflavins. They were all sort of concentrated. So natural foods, but concentrate and put into a pill. We did a sub-analysis where people who also took that pill had another threefold improvement in their symptoms and that was called phyto-V so the combination of the probiotics and the phyto-V significantly improved people's outcome to the extent that you know people were suffering for over 100 days and within uh, a week or so of the study they were you know they said it was like a light switching on and they were able to get back to work and function and communicate with their family Uh, so it's it was was really rewarding I've had a I've got a mate who's had COVID like five six times now Mm. Do you think gut health could be one of the things he needs to look at? Definitely. Um, If you have it that often, you probably never cleared it in the first place. There is a theory that some people with long COVID is they don't actually get rid of the virus completely. So it's like milling over. And we know many viruses do that. Um, You know, they mill over, the immunity sort of fights them a bit, but then it comes back again. And so you're in and out of symptoms. And it's devastating for many people. They can't get back to work. He's had a few different. He's tested positive and then and then been sick and then come right. Yeah. But then it's he keeps catching it. Yeah. Well, so, that's a classic long COVID scenario. Those were the people we got into the trial um, after the first phase went. Um, yeah. So definitely try those two interventions. Plus, uh, do other things to improve gut health. Gut health is sort of it's been nowhere to be seen in mainstream sort of chat. Like you wouldn't sit down. Well, you might, but I wouldn't really sit down with a group of friends and talk about gut health if we got sick. Like, oh, it must be your gut health. Oh, have you had your yoga this morning? <laughs> but are you finding it's starting to become more of a thing now, or do you think there should be some sort of promotion around gut health that maybe we haven't seen? Uh, definitely. Uh, before we started the COVID study, it wasn't talked about at all. Uh, obviously, we've published across the world, we've given talks, etc. And now people are, as I said, it's now mainstream if you go to a long COVID clinic. In oncology, well, uh, cancer treatment, I'm an oncologist as well. Again, it was poo-pooed. People say, oh, you're, you're a quack. You're talking about 
things which don't matter, it's only the drugs which matter, which is completely incorrect because if you give any drug, sort of chemotherapy or even radiotherapy, if you have poor gut, you're going to respond uh, less well and you're going to get more side effects. Which is what you, you do prescribe radiotherapy, chemotherapy, yet you're not just into these natural medicines. Absolutely. I mean, I spend my life poisoning and people and frying them with radiotherapy, but it's ways to try and improve the outcome and reduce toxicity and prevent relapse. That's what we're hoping to do. But anyway, what's happening um, more recently, we've moved away from chemotherapy or moving away from chemotherapy and using these biological drugs, which try to recruit your own immunity to fight the cancer. So there's one called PDL one inhibitors, don't worry about the name, which actually sort of uncloaks the cancer cell and makes it visible to your own immunity, and your immunity then kills it. And they're really successful drugs, super expensive, mind you. And, and we're getting amazing responses in people with metastatic disease who, you know, previously, you know, had three or four months to live, and now they're living for years. So they're... Oh, my gosh. Yeah, there's some, it's, we're in a new era of cancer treatment. These are now mainstream oncology drugs. So if you went for, you know, with breast cancer or a melanoma, you will be offered these drugs, as, you know, on the NHS and around the world. But interestingly, because they require your immunity to be part of the treatment... If you have better immunity, in other words, your gut health is in a better condition and your immunity is more efficient so you don't have this excess inflammation, they work better. In fact, there's lots of data now, uh, and you know, anyone can verify this, that there's about a 40% improved response rate to these drugs, which is absolutely amazing. That's massive. It is massive in oncology, wow. especially when you've only got like a 10% you know, benefit sometimes. So... And now you get to go to conferences like ASCO, which is the world's largest cancer conference, and you get the president standing up and saying, we now need to integrate strategies to improve gut health into mainstream oncology. So they're only just saying that. You could say it's driven by the fact we want more people to get better. But of course, if you were a cynic, you would say that you know these pharmaceutical companies who are earning billions of dollars a year on these drugs, I mean, they're super expensive. They're like £150,000 a year per patient. And these are the drugs that are related to the gut health. Exactly. So if you, if you do the maths and you're getting a 40% increased response, so that person might be on it for two or three years rather than two or three months, they're gonna, their profit margins are going to increase enormously. So suddenly trials which are researching gut health and ways to improve immunity are automatically now getting funding and mm. more and more research is done, which is great as far as I'm concerned. But, you know, that should have been 10 years ago, not now. Yeah, Big Pharma's got a massive play on whatever treatment we get, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, they, at the end of the day, they're doing good things. They're developing new drugs and they're supporting now lifestyle studies. Whether their motives were entirely ethical or is different. Mm. I mean, if, if you would they support the trial if it didn't mean they could prescribe more drug? Well, probably the answer is no. But either way, that they're supporting them. You talk in your book about deodorant and the harmful effects that that can have on on men and women. Can you talk me through that while we're talking about cancer and the things that can cause it? Well, the book talks about what we should do and what we shouldn't do. It's not black and white, but you know, it steers people into ways they should do more of and ways to do less of. And one of the things we talk about is carcinogens, so burnt meats, uh, superheated carbohydrates, you know, environmental toxins like car fumes, things in the house. It's difficult to avoid. But we can avoid um, these things called xenoestrogens or phytoestrogens. Phytoestrogens are things in food which have estrogenic properties. And generally, they're quite good for you. But xenoestrogens are things we sort of put on our body like deodorants, perfume, cosmetics, a shower gel, washing powder. Now, they stimulate the estrogen receptor in the body and actually encourage cells to grow faster. And when cells grow faster, they're more likely to develop a genetic mutation which could lead to a degenerative disease or cancer. So when you're putting these deodorants on, you're encouraging your cells underneath to be growing faster. And, you know, it, the risk is small. If you, if you looked at a trial of, say, a single cosmetic or a single deodorant and you did studies in animals, you'd say, oh, there's a very tiny risk. 
But yes, there is a tiny risk. But if you're putting it on from the age of 12 till 60 every day of your life, plus you're combining it by walking along South Africa. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. And I'm breathing taxi fumes, washing powder, washing up liquid, and all these other things we're putting on our body. The total carcinogenic load increases significantly. So there's a lot of little things will contribute to, you know, an increased risk of breast cancer. So one of the things we have control of is the amount of cosmetics and deodorants we put on our body. You use the bathroom in my house and <laughs> noticed all the uh, shampoo and the all the shampoo, like like I wash my hair all the time. You <laughs> noticed the shampoo and the shower gels and um, told me to stop using them. What should I be using? What, what's the way around that? As a man, you're less likely to get breast cancer or estrogenic cancers, but you know it could, it could have an effect on your testosterone and like fertility. Uh, yeah, maybe a little bit on fertility. Uh, slightly, you know, if you're y- younger, maybe slightly increased risk of testicular cancer. To avoid estrogenic pollutants, think about you know make sure the washing liquid is washed off the plates before you eat off them. You know, you can get soap. You know, good old fashioned soap doesn't have extra perfume in you can get olive oil soap but if you put it into a plastic bottle a they have to have preservatives in and emulsifiers to make it into a liquid and b the plastic bottle itself has toxins you know we know plastics you know have a carcinogenic property or an estrogenic property as well so i would try to just go for good old-fashioned soap and keep the shampoo obviously that's separate you can't really wash your hair with soap with plastic bottles because the drink bottles have been big in the like last, oh, they burst on the sand in the last twenty years, haven't they? Like when you mm. buy water at the service station, buy water anywhere, and you get it in those plastic bottles. How harmful? We know how harmful they are to the planet, but how harmful is that water that we're drinking out of that? Again, it's a, it's the total estrogenic load. So you know, if you're really thirsty on a hot summer day, it's you know, and you need to drink something, and the most convenient thing is a bottle of water in a in a plastic bottle of course that's not going to be particularly harmful mm. but if you're doing that every single day of your life it can build up so you know we know the uh, the fertility rate is dropping in men we know the libido rate is dropping we know the testicular cancer rate is going up we know that um, in women uh, breast cancer rates are increasing on an age stratified uh, time so uh, you know we know it's a problem uh, and that's why we all should be more vigilant on what on the amount of plastics we use when we look at how this world could end and there's all this talk about climate change and rightly so, where does infertility rate as a threat to humanity in your eyes? Um, you know, it is concerning. I mean, obviously at the moment there's not, a, there's not a risk to the planet. But if you take 100 years' time, if the amount of plastics and pollutants, estrogenic pollutants carry on at this rate, it could be that, yeah, there's a serious threat on on infertility and if men um you know and and western type families are having kids as they get a bit older you know into their 30s and maybe 40s where fertility rates drop anyway that could just be the straw on the camel's back so you know it yeah, i mean it, there's a book called 50 ways the world's going to die and uh, you know i think that's just one of them but um you know that is a serious p- possibility sorry about the interruption manscaped has partnered with the testicular cancer society to bring awareness to testicular cancer men's health and early cancer detection if you're a hairy beast 
with a bush that needs sorting, I'd recommend the Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer. That's what I use. The great thing about it is it's advanced skin safe technology that's designed to trim hair on loose skin. I actually haven't nicked my balls once. It's also waterproof, so you can tidy yourself up in the shower. Just make sure you clear the plug afterwards. Save 20% off and get free shipping with the code ROW at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code ROW at manscaped.com. That's R-O-W-E. Let's get back to the show. You talk in your book about bad breath and about how mouthwashes can be quite bad for you. Mm. Can you just sort of talk me through that and how that's sort of linked to other diseases? Um, Well, first of all, we have a thing called the microbiome. Um, gut health is just a part of the microbiome. We, we have our mouth, we have our nose, uh, our skin. Uh, there's bacteria all over us. And we live, in fact, there's more um, genetic material from organisms on our bodies than there is our own bodies. So clearly it's going to be very important, uh, the influence of these symbiotic bacteria. And the mouth is a classic example. So if you have poor dental hygiene, you've got food between our teeth, that promotes the unhealthy profile of bacteria. That's why we get gingivitis and things like that. We also swallow those uh, you know, bad bacteria, for want of a better word, and it goes into our gut. And there is data, uh, very strong data, that when you look at um, you know, colon cancer, for example, you can actually find bits of uh, pro-inflammatory bacteria embedded in the DNA of the of the bowel cancer. So one of the theories why we get bowel cancer is poor dental hygiene. I'm sure it's part of a, a multiple factors such as eating too much meat and beer and things. So yeah, so that is one of it's a risk factor. You know, you wouldn't think of telling your children to clean your teeth because you might get bowel cancer in 20 years time, but it is one of the factors. Is it is it that much of a factor? Yeah, yeah, I think it's a contributory factor, that's for sure. And then the, you think, well, I know what I'll do. Well, I'll take, a, I'll take an alcohol mouthwash, which kills all the bacteria. Mm. And the, the irony is, when then the bacteria grows back, the nasty bacteria tend to grow back quicker than the good bacteria. So all you're doing is promoting unhealthy bacteria to grow back into your mouth. So we should respect the bacteria in our mouth. We should clean our teeth, um, you know, properly. Swill, you know, make sure you get all the food debris out. But I wouldn't recommend a mouthwash, to be honest, unless you've got an infection or something. You know, you need to go to the dentist for. But on a day-to-day living, I would not take an alcohol mouthwash. Are there any mouthwashes you would take? There are some available, which. Um, we're looking at on the research side and they look interesting they've actually got probiotics in it so you swill your mouth with bacteria which is sort of the opposite of a alcohol mouthwash mm. isn't it tea is quite good for you as well you talk you you were you're involved in a product called pommy tea mm. can you talk me through that one of the th- diseases i specialize in is prostate cancer And it's a unique disease because at least half the men with prostate cancer who present these days have a very slow-growing disease and don't need immediate intervention with, say, radiotherapy or surgery. And that group, uh, a lot of men are going out there and thinking, well, what can I do to slow the progression of my disease to avoid these sort of pretty nasty treatments? And there's lots of myths and myths and big groups and people were taking all sorts of things like supplements like saw palmetto, lycopene, based on very dodgy data. So so anyway, I was asked uh, to join a committee where we said, look, let's get some science behind this and see which supplements people can take with prostate cancer or other cancers, uh, which might have an effect on their outcome. And the problem is there was virtually no research, no proper research so we then said, well, which foods based on animal study and cell studies and cell line studies have some theoretical benefits? And the four foods we found to be most beneficial, according to the research, uh, was uh, broccoli or cruciferous vegetables. So that would be broccoli, asparagus, wasabi, Brussels sprouts and things. Uh, the herbs, turmeric being probably the best. Uh, but, you know, ginger and things of that family are probably healthy as well. Green tea and uh, pomegranate, but not the juice, the ground seed, which has, is packed full of really healthy polyphenols. And we decided to form a capsule and also choose food from different food groups. 
So there's no point taking sort of ginger and and turmeric because yeah. turmeric because it's the same group, same thing. Same yeah. as not really much point of having Brussels sprouts and broccoli. So each of those foods work in different ways and probably in synergy. So they boost each other. And we said, well, let's just do the trial. So we did a double blind randomized trial where half the men took the capsule, which is now called pommy tea. It was it was a trial capsule. At in those days and the other half took placebo and we measured PSA which is a marker of prostate cancer and uh, took MRIs to see if the disease was stabilized and we were very pleased to see there was a 64% difference in the rate of progression between the two men the two groups of men so we were able to then say this type of food will help you uh, will help will slow the progression of your cancer which is already slow growing but nevertheless, uh, and then that, that that was then commercially made and it's made all over the world, that supplement now. And many people take it not just for prostate cancer, but for other cancers. So we're very pleased to get that data. That's not to say those only those four foods help cancer, but it just it was the first study to show that you could intervene with a nutritional intervention and improve outcomes. As far as just tea goes... That's quite good for exercise and things and, and the like, isn't it? Yeah, tea is generally healthy. If you add sugar to it, you are mitigating any benefit. Really? So all you like sh- completely? I would say so. What but, about artificial sweetener if you chuck that in there? Um, again, there is evidence that artificial sweeteners damage healthy gut bacteria. So they don't have the sa- it's not the same mechanism of harm, but there's another mechanism of harm by reducing. That's why all these big American studies where they looked at thousands of people and you know, looked at outcome over 10 years, they, it was a bit confusing why changing from sugar to sweeteners didn't improve health. We then subsequently found out it was because it was damaging gut health. Um, so back to tea. Uh, yeah, there's a lot. It's packed full of polyphenols. It's a, it's a liquid, so it's good to keep you hydrated. Um, it's and I, the list is endless. It's, it's anti-inflammatory. It reduces oxidative stress. It probably has some direct anti-cancer benefits as well. And we did we did a trial. We looked at we looked at forty thousand people, and we looked at their tea intake over ten years, and we looked at the subsequent incidence of prostate cancer, and it was slightly reduced. So we can actually say that with confidence. Uh, in terms of exercise, when you exercise vigorously, you can actually slightly increase these things called free radicals, which can damage your DNA. Most of the time, our normal defense mechanisms called the antioxidative pathways become upregulated and deal with these free radicals. So it's good. So as long as you graduate the exercise intensity, so you allow your body to adapt then that's why exercise is super healthy. So don't go from a zero to a hundred in the first instance. Go out there and go for a walk. Absolutely. So, you know, if you've not done any exercise, a walk is a great start, but, you know, gradually increase the intensity. But uh, that's not the only factor. We know that polyphenols, the things in herbs and fruit and vegetables and tea, support the antioxidants pathways. So when it's being upregulated, it helps the upregulation. So if you are going out exercising for the first time, you know, a cup of tea before or some herbs and spices or some turmeric would be a good idea. And if you're, in, if you're exercising intensively, such as an elite athlete, it's an absolute must. So tea would be one of many things we'd advise. I mean, New Zealand blackberries are supposed to be the, the latest superfood, which is a great for upregulating the antioxidant pathways. What about high blood pressure? How would we deal with that if you wanted to go and change what you were eating or you had high blood pressure? Like, What were some of the main things you could do to try and sort that out? First of all, reduce your salt intake, exercise more, try to increase the muscle-to-fat ratio in your body and try to improve gut health. I mean, basically you can throw gut health into any disease. Often in that situation, the blood pressure could just come back to normal. If you want, if it doesn't, then there's certain foods you could try to increase quite significantly, which act as things called vasodilators. Um, And they would have foods which have got nitrates in. So beetroot, uh, celery, most vegetables, to be honest. So beetroot and celery are the classic ones. For example, I I inadvertently took some anti-inflammatories before a couple of marathons, and I I got high blood pressure for a year. Uh, And subsequently, that's another thing you should avoid, is anti-inflammatories before exercise, because that can increase your blood pressure. So just before you exercise, taking an anti-flam? Yeah, 
which is common because you get dehydrated and that concentrates the anti-inflammatory in the bloodstream and that can partially damage your kidneys, which then reacts by increasing your blood pressure. Um, so many sports people who've had that practice have developed blood pressure and some have actually had, you know, developed renal failure. So definitely be careful with anti-inflammatories. Oh my gosh. So anyway, um, but if you want to go down that route, so you already say, you, did you say you put celery in your smoothie? No, you told me I've got to put celery in my yeah. smoothie. <laughs> yeah, so I put, I put um, banana, mixed berries. Oh, I'm not going to put any of these in now. I put oats and then I put in a protein powder. Yeah, well, the protein powder is probably okay. Yeah, and then I put turmeric, ginger, uh, cinnamon, and a little bit of cayenne pepper. Okay, yep, all excellent. Uh, Try to put some celery in as well. Um, um, I wouldn't recommend beetroot. It's pretty disgusting in a smoothie. But, you know, having some beetroot with your lunch or, you know, throw it in your salad is good. Beetroot juice is also good for before you exercise, isn't it? Uh, it sort of um if you want to lose weight and avoid an increased risk of diabetes um it's actually good to exercise on an empty stomach um so i always say to people for example if you have your breakfast at 7:30 in the morning and you manage to do uh, an exercise session say at half past 1 you've fasted for you know 6 hours then you exercise which biochemically extends the fast so that your calorie your when you exercise your body looks for those calories in your liver and your fat storage so for losing weight it's a good idea that said if you are exercising you do need to increase the intake of nitrate rich polyphenol rich foods of which beetroot is a, is a classic if you're doing performance exercise as long as it's not still in your stomach you've so it wouldn't be just before exercise maybe two or three hours before something like beetroot uh, celery spinach and protein rich foods such as peanuts legumes that sort of thing is a good idea you should always have beetroot in your fridge essentially i think so it's, it's super healthy and 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 it's got these things called nitrates which are again uh polyphenols which you know have direct anti-inflammatory properties but more importantly in terms of blood pressure they have uh nitrates um now nitrates in meat are harmful because they actually combine with protein to form nitrous amines which is a carcinogen but nitrates in vegetables actually get processed into nitric oxide which is a vasodilator which opens up the blood vessels so it improves perfusion of your tissue so they're very good for sports performance you get more oxygen where you need it improves perfusion of your tissue what does that mean uh, it means um there's more blood gets into your tissue easier so it blood carries oxygen so there's more oxygen where it's needed uh, in, you know including your brain so they're supposed to be good to prevent dementia and you know general fatigue you know those are the foods to concentrate on and in my experience probably about half the people who come to me because we have to monitor the blood pressure in oncology and a lot of our drugs are doing this with this advice they're avoiding going on to tablets at least initially you know the problem is when you go onto the tablets you're down a slippery slope because the tablets then have side effects you have to give another tablet to counterbalance that side effect so you know if you can avoid going onto tablets in the first place with nutritional intervention it's so much better for you something like dementia is there any nutritional therapy or nutritional medicine that you can do to kind of slow it down? Like, let's say you go and you get diagnosed with early onset dementia or you get diagnosed with dementia at all. Is there anything you can do? Well, once you've got dementia, a lot of the damage is already done. That's the problem. Um, so you've really got to be preventing dementia at your age, you know, because, you know, thinking about stopping damage in 20 years' time. So, yes, I mean, there's lots of different types of dementia. You know, vascular dementia is about hardened arteries in your brain, so the perfusion is low. You get these micro-infarcts. And, you know, that's the classic. Keep your cholesterol down, keep your blood pressure down. uh, Make sure you have nice, healthy fats. Um, But, again, you know, it comes down to gut health as well, because if you support your gut health, your cholesterol is going to be excreted out of your body rather than reabsorbed and and stored in your blood vessels, amongst other things. Once you've got a bit of early dementia, again, these nitrate-rich foods help with perfusion. So there is some evidence that you know, turmeric, celery, beetroot, those sort of foods can help perfusion. 
Exercise, of course, gets the blood flowing around your body and puts blood into all the tissues. So that's uh, there's lots of uh, uh, evidence for that. And, of course, it improves things like balance, and uh, especially if you introduce some core exercises and balance exercises. Because it's not just food that helps with dementia. Sleep's got such a big part to play in it as well, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, the Dementia Society, uh, if you go on their websites, they, they put a lot of emphasis on trying to avoid insomnia or, you know, good night's sleep. Um, and it's difficult, you know, especially in modern lives, we wake up in the early hours of the morning worrying about things. Um, but there are things called sleep hygiene. Um, and, you know, in the book and on our websites, we have, you know, 20 tips to help you get a good night's sleep. Uh, you know, not taking caffeine in the evening, um, you know, waking up in the morning and trying to get some direct sunlight on your on your body. So going for a brisk walk around the block before breakfast is, is a good tip. Um, when we did the COVID study, we noticed that sleep was a big problem uh, and that was contributing to what we call cognitive dysfunction. In other words, just a cloudy brain and not being able to think straight. As it turned out, the, the intervention of, of, of the, the probiotic and the phytochemical-rich supplement, uh, they, were, they were both contributing to better sleep patterns. And there's various reasons for that. One, if you've got a poor gut health and you're bloated, it creates this sort of muzzy-headedness and low mood. And if we go to bed in a low mood, we tend to sort of have more restless nights. Um, we know that things like resveratrol, coming back to your question Red about wine. what... Yeah, resveratrol is actually a mood enhancer. So it's not just the alcohol in red wine which actually makes you feel better. So could you have grapes before bed and it would help? There are some foods which have got naturally rich in melatonin. So cherries, grapes, uh, citrus foods. And melatonin is one of the hormones which help you uh, have a natural circadian rhythm. In other words, it prepares your body for sleep. And that's why, you know, if you're jet lagged and things, everything gets confused. Mm. Um, So, yeah, there is a school of thought. If you had things like grapes, cherries and things a few hours before bedtime, it would be a good idea. Coming out of the COVID study, the manufacturers who supplied us have actually now rebranded one of the supplements into a sleeping aid called Phytonite Plus, which contains those foods, citrus bioflavins, resveratrol, because the main outcome in the study was reduced daytime fatigue and better sleep. So it's now a non-sedatory sleeping aid. That's Uh, what I need. Yeah, and the the beauty, most sleeping aids try to induce sleep, you know, sedate people. But Mm. that's actually, although they do work very well in the short term, your body sort of gets used to them and they metabolize them quickly and then you only get a few hours sleep and it's not natural sleep. So coming back to foods, the foods which try to induce a a better mood, they reduce gut health, they actually try to improve the circadian rhythm. Those are the foods which will prepare the body for sleep and more importantly, prepare the body for natural sleep. So yeah, I mean, there are supplements available now, but yeah, those sort of foods not having processed sugar before bed, not exercising too late as well. That mm. sort of stimulates, that sort of tells your body to wake up again. Have you heard that chat around spinach being bad for you? Because some, I saw something on TikTok the other day and everything on TikTok's true. What the media tends to do, so, you know, they will, they will slam something um, down or they'll big something up and then they'll try to reverse the trend. So a few years ago, they were telling everyone that broccoli was bad because it's got this chemical in which could slightly reduce thyroid function the fact that most people's thyroid function drops because we're not having enough iodine they fail to mention the same with spinach you know we all know that it's a fleshy green vegetable it's full of folic acid it's full of minerals it's full of phytochemical it's clearly very very healthy um but of course that's you know that's boring isn't it for the media they'll want to say something healthy is bad so we can all read the article in the same study which took us 10 years to show that tea is beneficial most people went you know so what we already knew that we also looked at broccoli and we said yeah broccoli reduces the risk of cancer and literally and nobody was interested in that paper because everyone realized it was healthy anyway but you've still got to do the research to sort of show these things but you are right most of the time we already know what's good and bad for us mm. didn't you have someone that almost cured their husband just using broccoli soup 
it, yeah, it was quite fortuitous. At the time, we were forming this committee to look at which foods might have anti-prostate cancer benefits. One of a very motivated patient's wife started making him broccoli soup uh, every day with lots and lots of broccoli concentrated with black pepper and olive oil and things like that. And his PSA, a marker of cancer, significantly dropped. So that sort of alerted us to the data. And then obviously from that, there's, there are lots of data to support it. But that, yeah, that was a, a human story which sort of got our interest in broccoli. It's amazing. And you're a big fan of olive oil as well, aren't you? Yeah, uh, extra virgin olive oil, lots of healthy fats. And um, you know, there's an interesting fact that uh, some breast cancers they express this um, protein called HER2 and if patients have that it becomes a more aggressive breast cancer and this um, olive oil actually has proteins which attack that HER2 attack that pathway so it's probably got some direct anti-cancer properties as well amazing and isn't it good to put it on if you get sunburn absolutely so what's Uh, happening there how does that work we don't do animal studies but there was an animal study where they put mice without hair they're called nude mice under sunbeds for too long uh, and they put half they put olive oil on half of them and uh, over a series of months and the instance of skin cancers was significantly lower in the mice who'd had of olive oil put on them you know in the evening when it wasn't light and the instance of aging significantly dropped so uh, there was direct proof that the olive oil uh, helped with dna repair in the skin so it reduces aging if you've had sun exposure and reduces the risk of skin cancer. So any good after sun should have olive oil in or just put it on yourself. So you could literally, after you've been out in the sun, get some olive oil and rub it on your skin. Yeah. If you've sunburned in particular, you know, if you go off to Mykonos, whatever, in the Greek islands and you, you forget and you've, you've burnt... If all else fails, just go to a restaurant or just go to a shop, buy some olive oil and just massage it in and then shower afterwards. That's the best thing you can do. Cold shower or does that not matter? It would have to be a little bit warm because it needs to melt and get off your body. Otherwise, you'd have all the flies sticking to you an hour later. There's been a lot of negative press in the last few years about dairy. Is that coming from your sources as well? Are you... When you're talking to patients, are you telling them to cut out dairy? or It comes up in every talk I do. Should I have milk? Should I not have milk? I've been told not to drink milk. When you go back to the original research, there's not actually a lot of evidence to show that milk is particularly bad for you, unless you're lactose intolerant, which is actually most of us. So as we have lactose in our gut when we breastfeed to break down milk. Uh, and as... Through evolution, we never drank milk after the age of probably six months or so. So as we get older, if we have milk, we can't metabolize it very well. and It forms an inflammation in our gut and damages gut tail. So that's the harm of milk. It's also got quite a lot of fat in it. And 60% of the British population are overweight or obese. So it's not a good thing to eat if you want to lose weight. That said, you know, it's otherwise pretty good. It's got calcium, it's got protein. You know, if you're not overweight and you're not lactose intolerant, there's nothing wrong with it at all. But you've just got to identify if you're in that group. Thank you very much for coming on the show, Professor. Uh, Andrew, it's been a pleasure. And uh, we jumped around a bit in different subjects, but uh, I hope you uh, um, get some reasonable advice. No, no, there's lots of advice in there. I think like the, one of the reasons we jumped around quite a bit is because I wrote so many notes going through your book, and there's just so much to cover. So, I mean, we're probably going to have to get you on here again at some point. It would be a pleasure. And um, I just want to finalise that none of the things we're talking about is a sort of a guarantee cure-all for everything. Oh, there's the disclaimer. <laughs> there's the disclaimer. Uh, well, it's a slight disclaimer. And we, what we don't want to do is make people paranoid about food, paranoid about their lifestyle, or blame. You know, if someone has cancer uh, or, you know, and it relapses or develops, we don't want them to look at themselves and say, oh, I should have done this, I shouldn't have done that. Mm. Because a lot of the time illnesses are going to happen anyway, despite what we do. It's just about reducing the risks and trying to get the best out of our bodies. Is there a cookbook or a website that people can go to to try and get better recipes and better ideas on? You know, because that's one of the things I struggle with is like knowing what to cook for dinner. I'm not like a natural. I don't know how to put things together in my head as far as food goes. Uh, well, we have a website, keep-healthy.com, which looks at different foods uh, for different illnesses such as high blood pressure, cholesterol, joint, 
health, etc. But they're not really recipes, and I can't cook. So um, uh, I, I love Dr. Rupi. Uh, he was a, a, a doctor who's, uh, who does these fantastic, really tasty recipes. I've been on his show a couple of times, and, and I've eaten the food he's made, so I can verify they are really tasty, and they're super healthy as well. So he'd be, he'd be um, my first go-to if I was to venture into the cooking era. Well, thank you very much, and thank you very much for all the advice, and we'll check it out. We'll check out your website, and if you are looking for a book to buy at the moment that's full of handy hints and how you should live, it's literally called How You Should Live, isn't it? Or How To Live. Yeah. Apologies for the title, but yeah, it's called How To Live. <laughs> yeah, you didn't get too creative with that one. And if you like this episode, make sure you give us a subscribe. Hit the subscribe button, and it's really important. It helps us out a lot if you leave us a review and a rating on whatever platform you get this podcast on.